I greet each of you this morning in the name of Jesus. As Uncle David mentioned, this past Thursday was Thanksgiving, and I trust you had a good Thanksgiving. If you are a born-again believer this morning, I think you would agree with me that we have much to be thankful for. In spite of 2020, we have much to be thankful for. And if you truly believe that we are the bride of Christ and that he is preparing a place for us that is beyond our comprehension, where we will be in the presence of God eternally, then obviously we don't need to fear a virus. We don't need to be stressed out about who's in the White House or anything else that's going on in this crazy world because we're a child of God. We possess something that no external force has the power to take away. And Romans 8 talks about that. I want to just read several verses This is not uh, in conjunction with the message, but Romans 8, verse 35 through the end, speak of the thing that we possess that no external force has the power to take away. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he goes on to... talks about a little bit and then in verse 38 he says for i'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature i think that's about all he could think of so he quit then he said shall be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord so i trust this morning that if everything material that we have would be taken from us that we would still be a thankful people because of the thing that we have that no one can take away. The love of God that was shed abroad for us. The love of God that sent his only son into the world to die for my sins and yours. I've entitled the message this morning, Thankful for Enough. Thankful for Enough. And I want to think this morning on the subject of contentment. Right now is one of the busiest times in the world of commerce. This past Friday is known as what? Someone tell me. Block Friday, where we rush to the stores. This year we didn't quite as much, but we rush out and we line up as early as we can to get good deals on electronics and clothes and everything else that we so desperately need. Uh, Then yesterday was what? Not quite as popular. What? Small business Saturday, where you go to the small business and you support them. Uh, Tomorrow is what? Cyber Monday, Monday, where you go online and you buy all the stuff that you they ran out of in the stores. I guess that again you need so bad. So then today is what? Sunday. Sunday, (laughs) which is what? It's the Lord's Day, and I think that it would be. Appropriate to say that as believers living under the new covenant, I think it would be correct to say that every day of our life is the Lord's day. Whether it's Black Friday or anything else, every day is the Lord's day. Every moment of our life is entrusted to us by God and we are simply stewards of the time that God has given to us. And so we must use each day and each moment of our life in a way that brings honor and glory to God. 
But it's no secret that our society loves stuff. Our economy is driven by discontentment. Corporate America thrives on making you, the consumer, discontent with what you have. And it doesn't matter if you're reading a newspaper, a magazine, a blog, if you're listening to the radio, if you're driving down the road and you see a billboard. All around us, America is telling us that what you have isn't good enough. Think how much better your life would be if you just had, fill in the blank, the latest iPhone, uh, a faster car, a bigger house, cheaper car insurance, and the, and the list could go on and on. The point of advertising is to tell you that either what you have isn't good enough or what you don't have is keeping you from happiness. And our society thrives on that. Our economy is driven by that. Our society wants us to think that if we just had more stuff, if we just could accumulate more, we would be happier. And I think, unfortunately, too often, we, or at least me, as strangers and pilgrims, get enamored by these things. And we begin to chase after and long for the frills and the thrills that the world has to offer. And so it's good at times to step back and ask ourselves the question, do I truly find my sufficiency in Christ? Do I find everything that I need in Jesus Christ? And so my desire for the message is that we would think seriously about what really does drive us and that we would be challenged not only to be content with what God has given us, but also to renew our faith in the one who has promised to never leave us, to never forsake us, and to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. So there's three passages in the New Testament that speak directly to the subject of contentment. And I want to look at each one of these this morning and draw a few points from each one. But before I do that, I want to read a little story out of a book someone gave me. It's called The Power of Enough. And it's actually what inspired this message several years ago. It was written by Lynn Miller. Maybe some of you know him. I don't. But in the introduction to this book, he wrote this. It's a little illustration of contentment. Uh, maybe not the best illustration, but I think it's good enough. <laughs> I've discovered that I love getting phone calls from telemarketers. Maybe I shouldn't love it so much, but I get a real kick out of listening to their sales pitch telling me why I should buy their product that's guaranteed to make my life so much more satisfying. Some time ago, I received a call from someone in Florida trying to sell me a septic tank additive. This lady went on and on about the necessity of having the right amount of the right kind of bacteria in my septic tank to avoid having problems with bad drainage and blocked pipes. She described the awful task of digging up a drain field to replace the clogged tile and the horrible smell from the messy pools of black water that indicated you had a plug system. She also detailed the high cost of fixing all that and how for just a fraction of that cost, by buying her product and using it regularly, I could avoid all that expense and difficulty. Fortunately, when I had a new septic system put in, the county engineer had sent me some material on how a septic system worked. I was prepared for this kind of sales pitch, 
But instead of arguing with the lady about the necessity of putting more bacteria in a system that produces bacteria naturally when you use the system, I just said to her, thank you very much for your concern, but I have enough bacteria in my system and more bacteria will not make me happier. And without even saying a word, she hung up. And then he goes on to say, now if you can make a telemarketer hang up on you, that's power. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, I want to begin by reading verses 4 through 7. And in these verses, Paul is giving the church some admonition. Here's what he says. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So that's some instruction that Paul is giving the church to rejoice no matter what they're going through, to allow the peace of God to keep your hearts through Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, I'm going to jump down to verse 11, verses 11 through 13, where Paul gives his testimony, his personal testimony. Here's what he says, verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's Paul's testimony. So what can we learn from Paul's testimony here in these verses? He says, I've learned to be content no matter my circumstances. I've lived life having an abundance, and I've lived life in poverty. I've went through times in my life where I've been hungry. I've went through times in my life where I've had all the food I could eat. But through it all, in every circumstance, I've learned to be content. And so the first principle that I want to share that that I think we can learn from Paul's testimony here is contentment is something that must be learned. Contentment is something that must be learned. Being content is not something that comes natural for us. We are born demanding our perceived rights. It's about me having what I want and what I think I deserve. That's kind of our natural tendency. And to make matters worse, we live in a society that says, if you want it, you can have it. If you want it, you deserve it. Go get it. But Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever, whatever my circumstances, in spite of my circumstances, whether I have an abundance or whether I have a lack of, of the, my needs. I've learned to be content. What was it that caused Paul to be content 
in all circumstances. That's not natural. Why was, why was he this way? And I believe we find the secret to Paul's contentment in verse 13 as well as in verse 19. In verse 13, Paul says this, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then verse 19 he says, But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I believe the secret to Paul's contentment, in spite of his circumstances, was because Paul had learned something about God. Paul had learned who God was. Paul had learned that it didn't matter what was going on around him. God would give him the strength to do what he needed to do. God would supply his needs according to his riches and glory. Paul had experienced that. Paul knew something about God. And so he didn't concern himself with his circumstances. He learned to be content in whatever state he was in. What about you? What about me? Have we learned to be content in Christ in spite of our circumstances? And I think learning to be content must start by learning who God is. Do you believe that you can do all things through Christ? Do you believe that God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory? Paul had learned who God was, and so he knew he could trust God. He knew he could have faith in God. And so he didn't concern himself with the cares of this life, with his own physical needs. He learned to be content in spite of his circumstances. Something else that goes right along with this that I think is important to address. Paul says, I've learned how to be abased or to be in need, and I've learned how to abound or to have plenty. So Paul separates his circumstances into two camps, if you want to say that. Poverty and abundance. Now, it would be interesting if we would take the congregation here and divide each of you into one of these two camps. The camp that is abased and the camp that is abounding. And I don't know where all of you are in your material possessions There may be some in both camps, but I think it's safe to say that most of us here would be in the camp that abounds. We have an abundance. We have all we need and more. We have full bellies. We have everything we need. I think most of us here would be in the camp that has plenty. And so the question I have for you this morning is, have you learned to abound? Paul says, I've learned to be abased and I've learned to abound. Have you learned to abound? Have you learned how to be a productive part of God's kingdom with much? Can you be content with enough when you have the means to live extravagantly? And this is is a challenge to me because I'm in this camp. I abound. I have much. But can I live according to the teachings of God's word, with much. Have I learned to do that? And I want to, in thinking about that, I want to look at a principle that Jesus taught that goes along with this. It's one that we're all familiar with, but it's one that when Jesus presented this principle, his, his disciples, it said, were astonished. 
It really caught them off guard. They weren't expecting it. But here's what Jesus said. This is in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now this is a passage that, again, we're all familiar with, but it's a passage that for a lot of my life I misunderstood. I had always interpreted this passage to mean that it's hard to be rich and get to heaven. That's always just kind of what I thought. If you're rich, it's hard to get to heaven. But several years ago, quite a few years ago now, it, it occurred to me that that's not what it says. Jesus doesn't say it's hard to be rich and get to heaven. He says it's hard to be rich and enter the kingdom of God. And I believe, and if you disagree with this, I'd like, to, I'd like for you to discuss it with me afterwards, but I, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that it's very difficult to have much, to be wealthy, to be rich, and live according to the principles that he laid out. The principles that he taught us to live, of loving our neighbor, of giving to him that asketh of thee, of turning the other cheek, of going the extra mile, of not taking our brother to court, all these things, it's very difficult to live that way when our desire is to be rich. And obviously, if we can't live like Jesus taught, we don't get to heaven, and so that's, that goes along with it. But I think the kingdom of God that he was talking about was not heaven, it was here. It was the kingdom that Jesus was wanting to establish here on earth. And it's hard to be a part of that if you have much. And so again, I ask you and I ask me the question, have I learned to abound? Have I learned to have much and live like Jesus taught me to live? I think it's hard to deny ourselves the things that the world has to offer us when we have the means to obtain them. It's hard to say no to the flesh when we have all the material means to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so I, have I learned to abound? Have I learned to live the way Jesus taught me to live in spite of the abundance that he has allowed me to have? That's a challenge to me, and I hope it can be to you as well. The next point that I want to look at in this passage comes from the next verse, uh, verse 13. I already read this, but I think it's a foundational point, and it's one that I want to stress throughout the message, and that is that Paul's sufficiency was found in Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then if you jump up to verse 18, verse 18 and 19, Paul says, But I have all, and abound, and am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. 
Paul was not looking to the world for fulfillment. His fulfillment was found in serving Christ. He was looking to God for his needs. And, and his fulfillment was not found in the material things that this world has to offer, but his sufficiency was found in Christ. Now I want to turn back to chapter 3 of Philippians and ask the question, what is your greatest desire in life? I think it would be a true statement to say that contentment is attained when our desires are met. And that applies whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. When our desires are met, we are content. And so what are your desires? Paul states his desires here in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Here's what he says, Philippians 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And maybe I'll just stop there and say, before these verses, Paul lists all his earthly credentials. All the things that people would have lifted him up for. These things that, that, that made him successful in the eyes of the world. He lists all these things. And now here he's saying, those things that were gained to me, I've counted them as loss for Christ. And he says, in fact, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That was his desire, to know Christ. And then he goes on, this is the middle of verse 8, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That was his desire. Verse 9, he continues to state his desire, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. What is your greatest desire in life? These verses show us Paul's desire to know Christ, to be found in Him. To know the power of His resurrection. To know the fellowship of His sufferings. To be made like Him in His death. And this is why Paul had learned to be content in spite of his circumstances. His sufficiency was in Christ. His greatest desire was to be like Christ. To know Christ more fully. That was his desire. And so these material things didn't matter to him. If his basic needs were met, he didn't worry about those things because his desire was to know Christ. So contentment is attained when our desires are met. What is your greatest desire in life? I have an aunt who... Quite a few years ago, she decided that, I don't know what uh, she would say, but by all appearances, she decided that um, the husband she had didn't have quite enough money, and, and so she found a man that did, and she divorced her husband and, and married another man. 
And several years late after they got married, they bought a yacht. Now, most people can't afford a yacht, but they could afford a yacht. They bought a yacht. And they named this yacht Sweet Autarkia. And they explained to us that autarkia was a, is a Greek word that means contentment. Sweet contentment. They put that on the back of their yacht. Ironically enough, a few years later, they sold it and got a bigger one. Is your greatest desire wealth, fame, status, possession, or is it to know Christ? Psalm 119, verse 36 says, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, here in verse Timothy, Paul gives Timothy, this young minister, a lot of instruction on how to lead the church. And he tells him things that they are to flee, and he tells him things that they are to follow. Different places he says, flee from this and follow after this. And so I want to read now First Timothy 6. Verses 3 through 11. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us, therewith, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called. And I'm going to stop there. So here Paul presents two opposing mindsets. And he lays out in these verses what these two mindsets look like. And the one he says to flee from, the one he says to follow. So the two mindsets are gain is godliness. That's, that's the first one. That's the attitude of some people. That's the, uh, the way some people think in their minds that gain is godliness. The other one then is godliness with contentment is great gain. So that's the two ways of thinking that he lays out here. And so I want to look just briefly at what Paul says about each one. The first one, gain is godliness. And in verse, 
He talks about this in verses 3 through 5. And basically, it's these false teachers, and he talks about false teachers various times throughout this book. He warns Timothy about false teachers. But here, the, the mindset that these false teachers are pushing is that somehow our material possessions are an indication of spiritual blessing. So, the more you have, the more God is blessing you. And so, they chase after the almighty dollar, and they justify it by spiritualizing it. Gain is godliness. God is blessing me. Look at what God has given to me. Now, do we ever see this mindset in our world today, or even in our churches today? I think the answer is yes. When we look at our great wealth, our great material possessions, and we say, it's a blessing from God. Look at how God is blessing me. And, and I, I want to be careful here. I, I think we do need to, to give God glory for what He has entrusted to us. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that's not an indication of godliness. Our wealth, our possessions are not an indication of godliness. In fact, Paul says that this mindset is so dangerous that he says, withdraw thyself. From such, withdraw thyself. Don't allow these people to come into your life and convince you of this. Don't think that the more you have, the more godly you are, because that's just not right. And that way of thinking, that mindset, will lead you to do things that is contrary to the Word of God every time. In fact, he goes on and talks about it more in verse 9, where he says, They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and, to, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all evil. While some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's very clear. Stuff doesn't equal godliness. And so don't have that mindset. Don't think that the more you have, the more, the more God is blessing you, the more godly you are. So now let's look at the other mindset. The other mindset says godliness with contentment is gain. is great gain. The first emphasized gain. Gain is godliness. This one emphasizes godliness. The pursuit is godliness. The pursuit is not these material things. The pursuit is godliness. And we're seeking after the things of God. Just like Paul in Philippians, that's our desire, to know Christ, to grow in Him, to love Him more, to be like Him, to, to let His Word saturate our lives in everything we do. That's our desire. Godliness is our desire. And, and in that, we're content because the material things are not important to us. And that's great gain. And so Paul says, flee the pursuit of material possessions and follow something else. Follow after righteousness. Follow after godliness, after faith, after love, after patience, after meekness. And then he says, fight the good fight of faith. 
and lay hold on eternal life? Are we pursuing the material and justifying it by spiritualizing it? Or are we pursuing God and the things of God and using that, the material things that He allows us to have for His honor and for His glory? Again, I'm speaking to myself as much as to you. I have much. How am I using it? What is my pursuit? Am I as actively pursuing the things of God as the world is pursuing the temporal things, the material things? Again, I ask the question, is my sufficiency found in Christ? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says, once our basic needs are met, having food and raiment, let us be content and pursue the things of God. I read a story out of the Reader's Digest some time ago that really caught my interest. It was about a man by the name of Carl Ravder. He was an Austrian man. He grew up in a very poor family. And growing up, he, he looked at the wealthy and he thought that's where fulfillment is. That's where happiness is. And so as he grew up, he began to chase wealth. He began to pursue wealth with all he had. He worked hard and he became very wealthy. And he lived a very extravagant lifestyle. Big house, fancy vacations, lots of cars, gliders, uh, all kinds of stuff. But there was a problem. He wasn't happy. He had the wealth, but he didn't have the happiness that he thought accompanied it. So one day, him and his wife... We're on vacation in Hawaii, and they were spending all the money they could spend. They should have been having a great time, but he realized, he said he looked around at where he was at, it was all wealthy people, and he said no one was really happy. And here's what he said. He said, the staff played the role of being friendly, and the guests played the role of being important, and nobody was real. So it was all these happy people, these wealthy people. They had it made. They had fulfilled what they were seeking, and yet no one was happy. And so here's what he did. He decided to change his way of life. He raffled off his luxurious home. He sold his vacation house. He sold his gliders. He sold his Audi. He sold his successful business, and he now lives... On $1,350 a month. Now this was several years ago. I read this. I don't know where he's at now. $1,350 a month. And here's what he says about his life now. He says his life is so much better. And people say he looks 10 years younger. Praise God, right? <laughs> so here's someone who learned the value of enough. Learned the value that comes from contentment. But when I read this story, there was something that bothered me. There was nothing in this story about God. And I just had to think, if this man, he's found contentment, he's found fulfillment in contentment, but if he has not found God, eventually even his poverty won't bring him happiness. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is gain. If you learn, we could have a... Uh, Oh, not a religious service, but just a, 
persuasive speech on why you should be content. And we can convince all of you to be content, and it would make your life better. But godliness with contentment is great gain, eternal gain. So it's not just about being content. It's finding our sufficiency in Christ, wanting to know Christ, wanting to live like he wants us to live. That's where true contentment comes from. I turn now to Hebrews 13. Just a little background leading up to the verses I want to read in Hebrews 13. We all know Hebrews 11 as the faith chapter, a very challenging chapter on all these men and women who lived a life of faith. They were faithful in spite of everything that they went through. And then chapter 12, it shifts gears and it talks about our race. And you know, it's good to study history. It's good to study heroes of the faith. It's good to to be inspired by these people, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What matters is how I'm going to live my life. And so Paul says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Okay, let's learn from these men, let's learn from these women, but then let's buckle down and let us run the race. Let us do what God has called us to do. Verse 2 of chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's not so important what they did. What about us? How am I going to live? How am I going to run the race? And so in chapters 12 and 13, Paul gives a lot of practical instructions on how to run our race. And he covers a lot of things. I'm not going to look at it all. But I just want to point out the last couple verses in chapter 12, uh, verse 28 and 29, where Paul says this, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And so again, I just want to put our life, our existence in perspective. As Christian people, as God's people, we have received a kingdom. That's what I was talking about when I talked about Jesus teaching about the rich man entering the kingdom of God. We have received a kingdom. So how are we going to live? Paul says that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and a godly fear. Why? Because we serve a holy God. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is someone to be reverenced, someone to be awed, someone to dedicate our entire life to because of who he is. So how then should we live? And again, in, verse, in chapter 13, he continues to give all this practical instruction. He speaks of brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. Uh, don't forget to entertain strangers. Remember them that are in bonds. He talks about the purity in marriage. He talks about obeying them that have the rule over you. Not being carried about with false teachings and, and in a lot of different things. But in verses 
5 and 6, he talks about contentment. And here's what he says. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God said that. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Verse 6, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Again, I just want to... Reiterate this, our sufficiency is in Christ. It's not about just having my needs met. It's about trusting in God. God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The Lord is my helper. That's Paul's emphasis. But part of this starts with being content with where God has placed us in life. And the the point I want to make in these verses is that discontentment quickly leads to covetousness, goes right along with covetousness. And Colossians 3 tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Just to put in your minds the the seriousness of why we are called to be content. Contentment equals covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry. When we are discontent, we are essentially saying, God, you're not enough. You're not being faithful to supply my needs. And just like back in uh, the days of the children of Israel, when Moses was up on the mountain, God was speaking to him. God was taking care of all their needs. God knew exactly what they needed. He had just parted the Red Sea. And yet the people were down there saying, God's silent. Where's Moses? We need a leader. And so what did they do? They turned to Aaron and said, make us gods, and make them like we want. Make gods that will go before us and, and lead us. And it was, it was a terrible thing, and we just wonder how they could have done it, and yet in a way, we do the same thing when we are discontent with where God has placed us, or with what God has given to us. Basically, we're saying... God's not being who I want him to be. Or God's not giving me what I deserve. Or I'm not happy with the situation that God has placed me in. And in our hearts we say, God's not enough. And we begin, maybe even without even knowing it, to create our own God. And we turn God into what we think he should be. And we begin to live like we want to live. And essentially we're slapping God in the face and making our own God. When we are saying, God's not enough. I'm going to do it my way. God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So now we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And we can trust in him. So in closing, scripture is clear. If we are not thankful for enough, then we will not be a productive Christian in the kingdom of God. I think that's clear. Do we truly find our sufficiency in Christ? Or are we looking to the tangible things of this world? What is your greatest desire in life? May it be that you may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death.
Do you believe that God can and will supply all your needs? More is not always a blessing. Let's be thankful for enough. Shall we have a song?